Memphis, especially when things start getting warm. Uh, didn't get any rain this morning. We got all the rain out of the way yesterday, so I think I'll make a little stop by the beach on my way back home. It's not, a, it's not on the way, but I'll make it on the way. So, um, Also, just want to tell you guys, just thanks again for the support, the ongoing support that you guys give to the ministry. Uh, things are steadily growing, and uh, we're just having more and more impact on all the students there uh, every week, every week. We've been going through the book of Acts this semester, so that's why we're kind of going there. I'm going to give you guys a little taste of what we've been going through. And uh, we have a huge retreat coming up at the end of May. Um, so please, 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 uh, we have a lot of students that financially just can't come. Um, so if you would like to support any of these, any of these students to come to the retreat, um, please feel free to do that. There's some info out in front. If you want to receive a newsletter, um, please feel free to do that as well. Um, but today's text is Acts 29, uh, 19 through 32, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Twenty-six, nineteen through 22. And God was, God's word reads, therefore, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. By being the first to rise from the dead, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus with a loud voice said, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and, I am, uh, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these change. Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So as I, as I went through this text, um, a lot of things occurred to me. And we'll pray real quick. But this text really stood out to me. And it's one of my favorite texts in the book of Acts. So I hope that you'll stay with us. 
and as we go through it. So, Father, I want to thank you this morning. Thank you for your word. I want to thank you just for uh, just this time this morning and pray for uh, Pastor Decker as he's away. And just thank you for this community here, this community that loves your word and uh, this community that is not afraid to be called names for the gospel. And, uh, Father, I pray just for Lewis. I pray for uh, New Covenant here, Lord, and I pray that they, we, they would be a bold witness for your truth uh, that would not shy away um, when people call them names, Lord, but would stand up and proclaim boldly uh, to those who would uh, seek to diminish your truth. And in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So I have this question, and this may be a strange question, but we've all gone through this at some point. Have you ever been insulted? Have you ever been insulted? Have you ever been publicly insulted or humiliated? Now, there's a lot of things that people fear. They will say that, you know, most people fear speaking in public. You know, there are many things that people fear, but no one, no one, no one wants to be publicly humiliated or insulted. But on the flip side of that, have you ever insulted anyone? Uh oh. <laughs> it seems that we like to dish it out, but we don't like to take it, right? <laughs> How did it make you feel? How did you respond? On the other end, how did your insults make the other person feel? Like I said, the truth is, no one likes being insulted. We don't even like it when others insult people that we care about. You know, what is the greatest of all insults? Your mama. Right? Uh-oh. Those are fighting words. Those are fighting words. You can talk about me. You talk about my mom, we're going to fight. You can talk about my dad. <laughs> he can fight for himself. Don't talk about my mom. <laughs> you know, sometimes my mom used to say, you know, somebody ever says anything about me, you better not let them get away with it. <laughs> and she would say the same thing about my dad. She says, anybody talk about your dad? You don't let him get away with it. <laughs> she would not let my uncle say anything bad about my dad. Wouldn't let it happen. But there's something about insulting somebody that is, that is just deeply hurtful and painful. You know, as I reflect on this year's political contest, you know, usually political contests are full of insults, right? But there's something particularly special about this year. <laughs> I won't name any names, but we've seen it in the news. We've seen it in the news. I think the best one, uh, if you remember this debate, um, basically we had a candidate call another candidate a wimp. And uh, this candidate said, you will not insult your way to the, to the presidency. Now, that is yet to be seen. <laughs> that is yet to be seen. Or another candidate talked about another candidate's small hands. Some insults are better than others. Some are more effective than others. We laugh. 
But the truth is, Jesus takes insults very, very seriously. In particular, when they are against his people. In Matthew 5, 22, Jesus states, You have heard that it was said of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. Uh Uh-oh. Jesus takes this insult thing very seriously. In fact, here he is equating insult with murder. With murder. It's, it's, it's almost as bad. We see it as something that is so casual, so nonchalant. But Jesus says, you want to talk about the Ten Commandments? If you insult your brother or your sister or whoever it may be, it's like you've murdered them in your heart. Now, here's the thing. Like I said, it's, it's even worse when you insult one of Jesus's people. How many of you in here have been insulted because of what you believe? How many of you have been insulted for following Jesus. We've got some hands raising here. We've got some hands raising here. Uh-uh. <laughs> there is something particularly hurtful about being insulted for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In our text today, Paul is undergoing a whirlwind of insults. He's been enduring it all throughout the book of Acts. From the time he's saved in Acts chapter 9, he's been accused of of teaching against the law, of defaming Moses, of leading people astray, of being a false prophet and a deceiver, a liar, somebody who is destroying society, as we saw people accuse him of in Ephesus. But up to this point, there's been no Insult, worse than what we, what we see here. Up to this point, people have just insulted Paul's character, but now they're attacking him for what he is preaching, for his faith, for what he has learned. The, the attack is your great learning has driven you insane. Studying the Bible has driven you mad. How about that? That is what they are accusing him of here. Reading the Bible has driven you insane. However, even though we see it here, we think that this is a new thing. We we think that this is something that only occurs today, but it's always occurred to Christians. Is this not how traditional biblical Christianity is treated in our society today? Why would you read that old book? That's that's the old way of doing things. Nobody believes that anymore. 
This is still the attack that Satan uses against the church, against God's word, against the kingdom of heaven. The big question is, why, why, why has the world always thought, at least on some level, that Christians are crazy? That has always been the the attack. That has always been been the assumption. Something is wrong with those people. They are so strange. Who would do such a thing? Who would believe such a thing? We do have an amazing faith. We have a faith that requires us to, to think of things that are not normal. To think of a God that is bigger than what we have experienced. To think of a God that is bigger than what we may have encountered personally. To think of a God that is so different and so above and so much higher than us that we almost cannot comprehend it without special intervention from the Holy Spirit, without being born again. No one can understand. No one can understand what God is doing in the world. Paul calls it the mystery. He calls it the mystery of Christ. The truth is this. Christians genuinely should have a very different way of viewing the world. If you're, the way you act is so similar to everybody else who isn't in church this morning, then something is wrong. If no one can differentiate you by the way you live your life in following and in gratitude for Christ Jesus and what he has done, then something is wrong. Therefore, we need to realize because Jesus is Lord, we don't need to feel ashamed about our faith in him. Because Jesus came down and died for our sins and lived a perfect life and rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God, we don't need to be ashamed of what he's done. Jesus is our great hero. Jesus is our great Lord. We have no reason to feel ashamed for who he is and what he's done. As we look at this, por- this portion of Acts, the church has gone through much growth. The church has infiltrated almost this whole region of the world. The church has grown grown through leaps and bounds in this faith, in this calling, in this relationship with the most mighty and holy God. At this point of Acts, Paul's journey is quickly coming to an end. However, much has happened up to this point. Jesus has ascended into heaven and given the world, the church, the mission to evangelize the world. He says, go to Judea, Samaria, Antioch, and to all the world and preach this gospel and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we see that the church grows from a small room of people that could fit on one corner of this stage to over 10,000 people in a matter of days. We see that this great 
organization has been been made. We see that uh, deacons have been elected and food is being given to the poor and, and the poor and the needy are being helped and widows are being helped and the community is being made better. We see the apostles going out and preaching the gospel to many different areas around this region. However, we also see that the church has become persecuted for doing good. The irony is is that the church is persecuted for helping people, for loving people, in the same way that Christ was persecuted for helping and loving people. And because of that, the church becomes dispersed over the whole Mediterranean area. But that does not stop the gospel. It only encourages the gospel. It only forces the gospel to grow. In Acts chapter 9, we see Paul, who was Saul, become a Christian. He's knocked off of his horse and he's given the call. He says, Jesus says to him, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. You will be, you are my chosen instrument to be a light to the Gentiles. From there, we see Paul going out to the world in his missionary journeys and preaching the gospel to unknown areas, to people who knew nothing about the God of the Bible. He's tossed over walls. He's beaten. He's shipwrecked multiple times. We see the whole church coming together and proclaiming that to be a Christian is not because of what you've done. It's because of what Christ has done. We see that in Acts chapter 15 where All you need to do to be a Christian is to believe in the Lord Jesus. We see Paul completing his final missionary journey. And then in Acts 23, we see Paul finally arrested. And here is where we are today. In this text, we see Paul going before all of the leaders of this area and being sent through a gauntlet of courts to state his case, to not only defend himself, but to defend the Christian faith before the rulers and the principalities of the world. And now he is at his final stop before he goes to see Caesar himself. The first thing we see in verses 19 through 23 are that his faith is not based on an emotion. His faith is not based on... uh, uh, A bad theory. His faith is not based on what he's seen. His faith is based on the rational, clear teaching and truth of the scriptures. In verse 19, he says, Oh, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What is this heavenly vision that he's talking about? As you look back in Acts chapter 9 and even earlier in the chapter, Paul gives his testimony of how Christ came to him and gave him this mission. Earlier in the chapter, he says, I am Jesus, whom you were persecuting. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goals, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive 
forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by by faith in me. We don't sanctify ourselves. We don't make ourselves holy. We don't make ourselves acceptable to God. It is Christ alone who makes us acceptable to God. This is the heavenly vision that we would be saved by faith and that the whole world would see the glory and the majesty of Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what does Paul declare? He says, I've gone throughout this whole region. You go back to Acts chapter 1. What was the mission? To go to Judea, Samaria, to Antioch, and to the whole world and preach this message. What is this message that he declared? He says, first I declare to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, what? That they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with righteousness. In keeping in their repentance. So he does exactly what Jesus told him to do. He says he went, he went everywhere. Who did he declare it to? He, everyone who crossed Paul's path was liable to hear this message. You know, he didn't have a target group. He didn't have a, a particular person of status that he was looking for. It wasn't age that he was, looking for, he was looking for. It wasn't a skin color or an economic position or a, a person in political or, or any kind of power. This message was for everyone. Now, if you're a businessman, this may seem like a, a bad business uh, model for you to just preach to everyone. Would you sell a Rolls Royce to a 12-year-old? Would you sell a mansion to an infant? No, it doesn't make any sense. But Paul preached this gospel of the kingdom of God to everyone. Everyone. Everyone in Paul's path was likely to hear the gospel if he could help it. So then he talks about these deeds in keeping with repentance. Now, what does that mean? If we go back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus himself explains this very clearly. The word of God reads, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to, free, to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's John the Baptist. But Jesus himself says, a good tree does not bear bad fruit. And a bad tree does not bear good fruit. It's about the roots. It's about where it's coming from. What are these good deeds in keeping with repentance? If you have repented, 
If you have placed your faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit and your life will change. As we watched that video earlier, how do you get over a heroin addiction? It's not something that happens by natural, normal means. How do you get over all of the other various problems that those people mentioned? The, it takes a miracle. People, we are so broken that the only way we can overcome the sin of this world and the lust of our heart is through a miracle in Christ Jesus himself. If you begin to follow Jesus, you will become more holy. You don't become holy so you can follow Jesus. It will never work that way. You follow Jesus so that you can become more like Jesus. So then he mentions this. He says, for this reason, the Jews seize me in the temple and try to kill me. This is what Paul gets in return for his faithful preaching. He got anger. He got hate. He got rejection. In return for this this wonderful news that you can be saved apart from your works and by placing your faith in Christ. He didn't get love. He got despised. He says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and the Moses and Moses said would come to pass. Paul isn't making his gospel up out of thin air. Who are the prophets? In, in Matthew 13, Paul, uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah. All throughout the gospels, he's quoting, quoting the prophets. He's quoting the prophets. The, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all, everything they said, everything Paul said comes from those who came before him. What did the prophets say in Isaiah 52 through 53? We are are told that Jesus would come and die and suffer. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses says that a prophet like me will come up, will be raised up from among your brothers. In Ezekiel 37, we're, we're given this vision of dead bones rising up as he talks about the resurrection. In Genesis 12, 3, we're told that Abraham's seed would be a blessing to every nation and all people. And this is exactly what Paul says here. He says that the Christ must suffer and that being the first to rise from the dead, Ezekiel, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles, Genesis 12, 3. It's all completely founded in Scripture. This is not Paul's own theory. He wasn't the first one to come up with this. He didn't invent anything. He simply proclaimed what the Bible and those who came before him taught. You know, before I came into ministry, I worked in technology And if you know anything about computers and technology and programming, you understand that computers can only put out what you put into them. A computer is only as good as the programmer 
who programs them. We've all encountered bad software before. It's not the computer's fault. It's the guy who programmed it. Okay? In the same way, what we get out of, what Paul got out of the New Testament message was the truth that was in the Old Testament message. The message is one and the same. They're not two different messages. They're not two different ways of salvation. The message has always been place your faith in the coming Messiah and you will be saved. Everyone, anyone who places their faith in the Messiah will be saved. It was the same for Abraham looking forward to this promised seed. It was the same for David. It was the same for Adam and Eve. And it's the same for anyone who will be born today, tomorrow, or 100 years from now. They looked forward. We looked backwards. This is the key to the Christian message, that it is founded on God's eternal word that, as Scripture says, cannot fade away. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Do we have this faith in Jesus that was proclaimed by the prophets, that was proclaimed by Noah, that was proclaimed by Abraham, that was proclaimed by every person who's ever loved the Lord? Do our actions reflect what we say we believe? If we say we believe the prophets, are we following them in faith? What do we base our faith on? Are we basing our faith on our own opinions? Are we basing our faith on the guy in the lab coat? Are we basing our faith on the person in the nice suit on television? The person who wrote the most recent New York Times bestseller? Or the person who is rich, therefore they must be smart? Or are we placing our faith in God's word? Do we value the Old Testament? Do we value the prophets and Moses as Paul did? You know, we often forget that what was Paul's Bible? Paul's Bible was the Old Testament. Up until this point, most of Jesus' sayings were still oral tradition. They had not been written down yet by the apostles. Paul's Bible was the Old Testament. It is just as much the word of God as the New Testament is. Do we value our own opinion more than God's truth? Paul didn't, and neither should we. The next thing we see in verses 24 through 29 is that not only is he armed with God's rational, founded, eternal truth, it's also, Paul is also backing this truth with a very bold life and statement 
about what God has to say. Have you ever been to court? Now, we've all, well, we've pretty much all admitted that we've insulted somebody. <laughs> but most of us have been to court, right? Sometimes for good reasons, but most of the times because something is going wrong, right? Of course you have. Paul here is in court. And he is giving a defense not only for himself, but he's also giving a defense for the gospel itself. Paul is an apostle. He is an ambassador. That is what it means to be an ambassador. You are a representative for the kingdom of God. And he is there as God's representative in front of some of the most powerful people in the world. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we need to always be ready to give a defense for what we believe. We need to always be ready. We need to be ready to preach in and out of season, as Paul later says in, in, the, in the books of Timothy. Is Paul defending himself or is he defending the gospel? I guarantee you that Paul is not worried about being killed. Paul is not worried about his own private reputation. He's already lost everything. He has nothing else to lose. He's not worried about what people think about him in the community. He's worried about the glory of God and God's name, that God's name would not be taken in vain. As he says in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It is the power of God. Wrap your head around that. The gospel is the power of God. It is the very manifestation of everything it means to be God. The very creative work of the universe is wrapped into the gospel. It is the power of God. When you call a follower of Jesus crazy, You call Jesus himself crazy. The word reads, and as he was saying these things, Festus couldn't take it anymore. Have you ever been so upset with somebody with what they were saying that you just had to stop it right then and there? This is a dignified man. This is a leader among the people. This was the governor of this whole region. And this governor stands up and shouts, you are crazy. Now, I'm a relatively young guy. Lord willing, I'll have a lot more years of preaching. But I hope that I'm never up here preaching one day and somebody stands up and says, you're crazy. But in many subtle ways, I would even say it happened a couple of weeks ago. I had to explain that, hey, if you don't believe the gospel, it doesn't matter. If you've never heard the gospel before, you don't know who Jesus is. You are still liable under God. 
to believe the gospel and you will be punished for your lack of faith. And this girl got up and said, that is wrong. She was nice about it, though. We had a good conversation about it. But she was very offended. The gospel is offensive. I'm not completely sure you understand the gospel unless you are offended by it in some way. Jesus said, I I came to bring a sword to divide son against father and daughter against mother, brother against sister, brother against brother. If you are not offended by the gospel in some way, chances are you don't really get it. So why does Festus claim that Paul is crazy? I mean, he was so upset that he had to scream at him. And you can feel it from the text. You know, I don't know know what the etymology of the word fester is. (laughs) But I would change it in the the dictionary because it had to come from this, right? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a linguist, okay? But he was festering. Festus was festering. And he was boiling over. He couldn't take it. It says, he said with a loud voice. He didn't say it quietly. Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He says it twice. He says it twice. Have you ever had to scream at somebody that was just doing the wrong thing? You're looking at him and you're like, this doesn't even make any sense. I am frustrated at you right now. Wake up. You're driving down the road and, you know, somebody's in the middle of the night. They don't have their lights on. They're looking at their cell phone. You know, uh, who knows what they're doing? They're eating a sandwich. Wake up, man. You're crazy. You're crazy. But what is, what is the accusation here? You've studied the Bible so much that you've lost your mind. That is the accusation. That is the accusation. It's the same thing we hear today. You're studying that Old Testament. Don't you know you couldn't wear two, two types of cloth in the Old Testament? Why do you shave? You know, you couldn't even shave in the Old Testament if you were a guy. That, that, that book's driving you crazy. We hear it over and over and over again. Over and over again. But what does Paul say? Paul says, I am not out of my mind. Clearly, right? This man has led one of the largest movements ever known to mankind in a very short amount of time. He has bewildered some of the greatest thinkers of his day. And he's giving these guys a run for their money right now. He says, most excellent Festus, he says this very respectedly. I am speaking true and rational words. You know, you know, today when somebody's in really deep trouble and there's no other way to get them out of it, what do they do? They, they, they take the insanity plea, right? Man, this would have been 
If Paul was in jail and he just wanted to get out of jail, he'd be like, man, you know what? I am crazy. You just said it, so you got to let me out, right? I'm just a crazy dude. Just let me go. No, but nobody arrests crazy people. You, you don't even send them to jail. You send them to a completely another institution, you know? But Paul is not interested in getting himself out of trouble. You know, what, is it, what does it even mean to be rational? What does that even mean? You know, we, we look back and, and Pilate says, what is truth? But what is rationality? What, is, what does it mean? Psalms, Proverbs 9.10 says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You want to know what it means to be rational? Being rational means believing in a God that you've never seen. Believing in a God that created the universe out of the power of his word from nothing. It means believing in things that we could not possibly comprehend even if we had all of eternity to try to. That's what being rational means to the Bible. It is a completely different definition from what the world gives us. Will we ever be able to develop a theory or a formula and write it on a chalkboard and say, hey, look, this is a proof of God right here. Will you ever be able to jump in a spaceship and go visit the angels and the Lord? No, it doesn't work that way. You see, the Bible has a completely different starting point for measuring truth and wisdom. Does Paul think the gospel is logical? Absolutely. It's the most logical thing. The gospel absolutely makes sense to me when you watch the news and you hear about a girl being beaten to death for no reason in Wilmington in a school bathroom. When you hear about 500 people dying as they flee from ISIS in the Middle East, many of them Christians, to go find a better life because of tyrants over there. You believe there's something wrong with the world. There's something deeply, deeply Deeply wrong with the world. When you see people being exploited left and right, and even some people giving themselves over to that exploitation, there's something wrong with the world. There's something deeply irrational. There's something deeply crazy and backwards about the world. The sin of the world is proof of itself that we need a savior. The sin of the world is so deep that the only thing that could save it is a supernatural miracle. The power of God that we can only know in Christ Jesus. You you guys have seen it. Even in your own lives, how broken and desperately in need of a savior our world is. It's the only answer. 
It's the only true answer. It's the only rational answer for the world that we live in. <clears throat> you know, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31 says that the wisdom of the world is nothing compared to God. Let's, let's read this section here. Chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's crazy to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God, not God, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach <clears throat> to save those who believe. Paul is freely admitting this isn't complicated what we preach. This isn't astrophysics. You don't need to be Isaac Newton or Albert Einstein to understand the gospel. A little kid can understand the gospel, right? It's not hard. It's so simple it's almost foolish. You know you've got sins. You know you need to get them paid for. You know God is holy. You know that he cannot accept your sinfulness. It's that simple. You, need, you know that you can't pay for it yourself. Therefore, you need somebody to pay for it for you. He goes on to say, for Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. He is the embodiment of that. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The weakest thing about God is stronger than any man or wiser than any man who's ever lived. <clears throat> you know, I think about it and you think about a Lamborghini compared to a Toyota Prius. If you've got a Prius, don't be offended. But the cheapest thing on a Toyota Prius, the most expensive thing on the Prius is less expensive than the, the cheapest thing on the Lamborghini. The tires on the Lamborghini can pay for the whole Prius. The whole thing. An oil change on the Lamborghini costs more than the Prius. The monthly insurance payments on the Lamborghini cost more than the Prius. Okay? This is the comparison here. The foolishness of God is wiser than Albert Einstein. Wrap your head around that. We underestimate how smart Albert Einstein is, or was. That was a smart guy. But the foolishness of God is greater than that. <clears throat> you know, we look at this and, and we say, you know, Paul says, I want every one of you 
to be what? Like I am. Foolish like I am. Jesus says you need to become like a child. You need to have a childlike faith. I want every, if, if this is foolishness, I want you all to become fools. I want every one of you to become foolish. I want every one of you to become crazy like I am. And then maybe, 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 as Proverbs 9.10 says, you can start to be wise. I love this quote, but Augustine says, you know, you don't get to know God. It's not you have faith to believe. It's not that you have to believe to have faith. You need to have faith so that you can understand. The faith causes you to understand. It doesn't work the other way around. You don't understand so that you can have faith. Okay? You need to become foolish so that now you can understand. You know, we ask these questions. Can you persuade somebody to become a Christian? We are called to preach the gospel to others, but it's the job of the Holy Spirit to change people's hearts. We are co-laborers with God. We work with one another. God has given us the privilege to be a part of this ministry. Does God need us? No. But he joyfully and lovingly comes along with us and helps us in this ministry of foolishness. Can you trick someone into becoming a Christian? Hey, man, come into this room. I've got a million dollars. And they come in there and they fall into the baptismal pit. Or, or for some of you more strict, they, you, they come in the room and you dump a big pot of water on their head. No, you can't trick anyone to become a Christian. You can't do that. Are we ministering by using honest means or are we trying to manipulate people into coming to faith? You know the old bait and switch? You know, you know if, you, if you need some help with the assistance, all you got to do is come to church every week and we'll give you some help. Can you force someone into becoming a Christian? Can you beat somebody up and say, I'll stop beating you up if you become a Christian? That's what, that's what other religions do. No, it doesn't work that way. In John chapter 3, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. It comes and goes wherever it pleases. We don't have control over who is called or over who is to become a Christian and come into faith. But we do have control over the preaching of the gospel. And that is what we are called to do. But are we forcing our children and grandchildren to, to, to take part in our faith? Are we... You know, saying, if you don't come to church, you're going to be in punishment. Or are we praying for them and loving them, showing them the love of Christ as Jesus did?
So as we see, this power is a bold power. It's a bold word. It's a bold truth. It's a rational truth. It affects your mind. Romans 12, 1 says, be renewed in your mind. But it also comes in your heart. So what happens to Agrippa and Festus and Bernice, people who heard this this powerful message, preached boldly to them by the apostle themselves? Imagine the great privilege it would be to hear the apostle Paul preach himself. I would like to believe that I would line up for that and wait outside forever. Like people wait outside for those iPhones when they come out for weeks at a time. They get their little tent. But what what happens to them? We see in verse 30 through 32 that they have a very strange response. He says, then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. What is is strange about that? First of all, we see that Agrippa and Festus are appalled that Paul thinks that they're so simple-minded that he could convince them to change their religion in a matter of minutes. That is pretty bold, right? I don't know what political affiliation you are, but imagine if somebody came in here and said, I'm going to make you switch sides in five minutes. Or less. <laughs> we got some people shaking their heads. That's a little funny. <laughs> That's pretty bold, right? It is something to be, be somewhat offended by. But Paul knows that it's not up to him. It's up to the power of the Spirit. But these guys, they hear Paul preach the gospel to them personally. And they walk away just as indifferent as they had walked in. They had gotten over the huge claims that Paul was making. Paul claimed that a man was God, is God, still is God came and lived a perfectly sinless life. You understand how big of a claim that is? That he died and rose into heaven and now is seated right next to God. That is a bold claim. But they've gotten over that. And they walk away casually. They don't debate with Paul. They don't try to go point for point with Paul. They realize they can't because everything he said is straight from the Bible. Festus and Agrippa cannot prove Paul wrong. They resorted to name calling and cowardice, which is normally what happens when people realize they're beaten. When they had no response, all they could do was walk away from the fight. And stand, uh, instead of standing up for Paul and the truth that he proclaimed, they kicked it down the road. 
They kicked it down the road. They said, we're going to let Caesar deal with this guy. We're going to let, we're just following orders. We're just following orders. There's a time and a place for that, but that can also be very dangerous sometimes. The whole situation is eerily reminiscent to Pilate. The whole situation is the exact same thing. Jesus said to Paul, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. And the psalmist says this, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But this is what God does. Psalms 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. You you think I'm crazy? You're the one who's crazy. I'm laughing at you. You ever... You ever laughed at somebody who was just so far out to left field that you knew they couldn't be helped? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Derision is not quite pity. It's it's kind of a, I feel sorry for you because you brought this on yourself. It's your fault. Pity is, is not really your fault. Derision is, is, you earned this. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What does God think when people call you crazy for being a Christian? He laughs. He laughs. <clears throat> Who are the real crazy people? Who are the real crazy people? The crazy people are not those who put their faith in Jesus by the power of the Spirit. It's not because we were so smart or anything like that. It's because the Holy Spirit made us alive and quickened us so that we could see the truth of the gospel. The crazy people are those who don't believe in Jesus. So the question is, are you crazy? Are you crazy for Jesus? Or are you just plain crazy? Are you crazy? Or will you follow Jesus? Because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have made the wisdom of man nothing compared to even the foolish of God. Father, I I know that We've all had crazy moments and that we all do things that 
don't please you, but Lord, you have saved us from our sin. You have taken us out of the darkness and into the light. You have taken us from um, the, 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 the family of Satan and placed us into the family and the household of God, Lord. Um, you have made us children of Abraham. And that just as Abraham walked in this faith of a coming Messiah, that we can walk in the, in the faith and the trust of a Messiah who's come, died, and rose again. And in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Please rise.